everyone. Welcome to Bradcast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm your co-host, Liam Clifford. And today we are here uh, jo- joined with uh, Hunter Blue, who's doing his master's in political science. So welcome to our show, Hunter. Uh, thank you for having me on. All right. So Hunter, we'd like to know more about you and what what you're doing and what you're working on. Uh, yeah. So uh, as you said, I'm a master's student in the Department of Political Science. And my research uh, is focused mainly on uh, current uh, trends within uh, right-wing movements and right-wing politics in uh, North America and Europe. Uh, So specifically, the research that I'm working on right now is examining the Republican Party and uh, major shifts within that party from the 2016 election through to the 2020 election. Basically, we're trying to understand if there's been major ideological shifts in that party because of the results of the 2016 election. Well, <clears throat> wow, that's super cool, and I think we're all engaged in this kind of a to- this topic right now. So, awesome! As they say, we are off to the races now, Hunter. <laughs> perhaps it's best to start with 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Donald Trump comes on the scene even before the election, right? He wins the primaries. What sort of platform does he operate on? Can you just refresh our memory? Yeah, so he's running on basically a right populist uh, campaign, right? So a lot of, if you look at his messaging, a lot of it had to do with strength and persona, right? The idea of reclaiming a lost glory, i.e. make America great again. Implicit in that, what was again? You know, what is it hearkening back to, right? What's this mythical golden era, right? It's a myth, it's a myth that he's hearkening to, but it was an effective myth. Right. And this translates into concrete policies in the form of, for instance, a border wall, an immigration ban on Muslim majority countries, the banning of critical race theory and federal uh, programs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Could you expand more on right wing populism? What is what does this term populism mean in this particular context? So generally speaking, populism, the term itself uh, has uh, limited analytical value, right? Uh, a lot of theorists have pointed this out because it's, it's incredibly difficult to get any sort of real meaning out of a term like populism when you have someone like Bernie Sanders and Hugo Chavez and Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil all being lumped into this populist category. Now, there have been efforts to sort of delineate between, you know, you have left populist, you have right populist, blah, blah, blah. But still, the water gets quite muddy, Right. There's significant differences in left populism, for instance, between the sort of social democratic Bernie Sanders types and the uh, more hardcore anarchist, capitalist, uh, anarchist, anti-capitalist, communist, socialist, et cetera, uh, strains of the left. But just broadly speaking, populism is basically this notion that politics is being conducted in an area of contestation between the elite, however you may define that, and the people, however you may define Mm -hmm. that as well. Wow. So do you think Trump thinks of himself as a people's person or people's champion in some way? Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely. Uh, But the the key thing to remember there is who are the people in this uh, this context, right? The people certainly aren't, they're certainly not uh, anti-fascists, 
right, who have been a scapegoat. They're certainly not Black Lives Matter activists who've been scapegoated. They're not the left, right, the radical left, and these communists who apparently, according to Donald Trump, got Joe Biden elected through fraudulent means. Or the squad, um, ESC plus the people, three, as he says. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the people in this... Um, in his formulation, in Donald Trump's mind, the people who he's the champion of are this sort of, again, a mythical narrative about uh, white working class people in America, right? The sort of hardworking, uh, down to earth, Republican family values, suburban white family. Thank you. And I think race is an important point to pick up on. This was absolutely integral to Trump's policies back in 2016 and even going through his presidential tenure. And I know you mentioned critical race theory. Can you talk about what that is and how race was weaponized by Trump to help garner support? Yeah, absolutely. So in the 2016 election, it wasn't so much uh, African-Americans in the states who were demonized, although there definitely was some of that, absolutely. As with anything in American politics, the sort of uh, racial politics that African-Americans and whites in the, in the states go through on a daily basis is always present. But in terms of like actual campaign promises, Trump focused mainly on immigrants, right? He focused on uh, like, for instance, the caravan of refugees coming from the southern border, uh, Mexican immigrants, and uh, Muslim immigrants from uh, Muslim majority countries, right? Those uh, were really the targets of his, his, uh, his actual policies that he was recommending. Again, the border wall, the immigration ban. Uh, I think Kellyanne Conway even early on talked about a values test, for instance, and things of the, that nature. Um, so in this sense, right, this harkens back to uh, sort of economic policy or economic uh, anxieties, right? You see in America and actually all around uh, the industrialized world, a very real economic crisis, right? This was happening before COVID, but COVID is honestly and uh, quite obviously exacerbated this uh, economic problem. You know, we are experiencing, we're in the middle of a very, very tumultuous economic situation. And those anxieties, uh, he managed to weaponize them, right? It's not that business leaders are making the decision to seek cheaper labor out overseas. It's the fact that there are non-white people coming into your country, taking your job and making you personally worse off for it. And it's those sorts of anxieties which he managed to weaponize in a really toxic way, right? And this is manifested obviously in things like, you know, a higher incidence of hate crimes and things like that immediately following the 2016 election. Yeah, well, there's a lot to be said about 2016 and Trump phenomena as well and how impactful and revolutionary it is for the entire Republican Party as well. Um, I was wondering, yeah. you've used your, the term, um, you've spoken about fascism in your research and studied fascism. Mm -hmm. Tell us what this word means. I, and I asked this because it's a bit perplexing given the history uh, and of of this term and how it's being used nowadays. Absolutely, right? So one of the things that people are worried about, and I think rightfully so in, in the contemporary, in this moment right now, is a resurgent fascism. And that's a bit misleading, right? And it's misleading for a couple reasons, right? We 
are experiencing, without a doubt, a resurgence of a very ugly form of right-wing politics, a very xenophobic, very racist, very patriarchal, homophobic, you check all the other boxes that you want to, uh, sort of right-wing politics that really do threaten the, the physical safety of a lot of people, right? If you look at Brazil, for an instance, because again, I, I want to bring in international examples because this isn't strictly an American phenomenon, right? This is a global phenomenon, right? This is happening all across the industrialized world and even in some cases in the developing world where you have this right-wing reaction against uh, liberal cosmopolitanism or more advanced forms of leftist politics. And in Brazil, this has taken the form of a body count of activists, left-wing activists, gay rights activists, and feminist activists who are just straight up murdered by neo-fascists, right? And it's appropriate to call these groups neo-fascists because they do claim direct links to old uh, classical historical fascist movements mm -hmm. such as the National Socialists or Mussolini, for instance. But when we're talking about, more broadly speaking, what's happening right now, the main currents of this new right movement are not neo-fascist, right? They do not claim direct links to those classical historical fascist movements in Europe, right? The literature that I'm engaged with right now uses the term post-fascism. Mm -hmm. And they use that term because they want to emphasize that this sort of right-wing politics is inextricably tied to and an outgrowth of the classical fascist movements that happened in Europe in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But at the same time, it's obviously post, right? It is anterior to uh, the, the actual fascist movements uh, of history, right? And there are very significant differences, right? So for instance, a lot of the overt uh, discourse of racial superiority and race science, you know, quotes around the science, uh, of race science uh, have com been completely uh, jettisoned from the discourse, right? Rather, what you see is a, again, a mythological uh, narrative about a pure people and a pure, not just pure people, but people with pure values, right? People who are able to really represent a national virtue, right? They embody a national spirit and a national character. And the point on nationalism and national discourse, nationalist discourse is important because that's one of the main ties between the uh, historical fascism and the sort of politics of these post-fascist movements. And just to give you a few examples of these post-fascist movements, sure. we're talking about the, uh, front, uh, the National Front in France. We're talking, mm -hmm. about, um, uh, we're talking about, for instance, uh, in Canada, the uh, Maxime Bernier and the People's Party. Right. These are the sorts of actors that we're talking about. Um, and we see a lot of these these uh, movements take the form of political parties uh, in Europe. Uh, but in America and Canada, outside of the People's Party, which they are a political party, but they're not they don't have anywhere near the sort of uh, actual political clout that, for instance, the National Front does in France and French elections uh, in Canada and America. It's actually civil society groups like the Proud Boys, the Soldiers of Odin. Uh, Canada Proud, those sorts of things, which are the main fronts for this sort of uh, political discourse on the right. So I, I think an important point to note then is that if, you know, I don't want to say it's a continuum, right? That one side is one element and another side is a completely different one. But I do think it's important that there's a categorization going on. So how do modern day groups adapt 
fascist elements, like some of the ones you've mentioned, mm-hmm. to the modern day to become a post-fascist group? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question, right? And one of the things that, uh, like, again, bringing this back to nationalism, right? The nationalism of, for instance, the National Socialists was inherently expansionist, as was uh, Mussolini's uh, fascism, right? Where you were extending beyond the confines of the nationally determined borders to project this uh, mythological narrative and make it concrete, right? The idea of living space and whatnot, blood and soil, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in modern discourse, there isn't really an expansionist rhetoric, right? You have uh, the idea of defending the homeland from deterioration, from degeneracy, right? Of course, uh, women working outside of the home, that's degenerate. Homosexuality, that's degenerate, according, according of course, to these, uh, these demagogues and whatnot. Uh, and these are the things that need to be uh, battled, right? That need to be fought. And in many ways, when they say that they need to be fought, they mean it quite literally in the sense of going out and meeting these other sort of left-wing protesters or left-wing politicians and actually confronting them either physically or just face-to-face with words. Um, So in that way, you can see that there is a link discursively, but it has shifted in, in a sense, right? Where it's no longer, it no longer has the same sort of aspirations for domination as it does uh, reclaiming a sort of lost image of itself. I was wondering, I was wondering how one would go about explaining how successful some of these dangerous movements have been, how someone like Trump has uh, used these fascistic strategies to, to well, win at least four years of presidency and possibly he might run again in 2024 being a rather popular in in its given his constituents um what kind of explanation do we have to to offer when it comes to explaining the explaining the success of these things well th- there's a couple explanations and they intersect in many ways and it's impo- i'd say it's impossible to quantify with numbers, the ways in which these different strands interact. Uh, But I think it's very clear, again, economic anxieties play a very real role in this, right? It is very easy, unfortunately, to scapegoat immigrants for the economic problems that our current uh, economic system has imposed on people, right? The deindustrialization of the Rust Belt in America, right? The Republican stronghold, the place where you see the most toxic and dangerous forms of this rhetoric. These are the places that have the highest level of illiteracy, the lowest outcomes in terms of healthcare. These are the places where workers are the lowest, like the least skilled, where you have on average the lowest level of education. And of that education that they actually did receive, how much of it was actually quality and how much of it was the sort of education where you go to science class and you learn about creationism. Yes, right? it also So the economic do... side of it is, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. I think there's a bit of a lag. I was just saying, I guess it also has to do with the kind of fear someone like Trump introduces by talking about communism or how these uh, people like Bernie, crazy Bernie is going to take over or something like that. Uh, so it's interesting to see how he's capitalized on people's fear. 
Absolutely. And again, I, w- I really appreciate you bringing up that point because I was actually going to segue to this next. This idea of, obviously, you know, there are communist organizers in, Amer- in North America. They are not the majority. They, they are, will not be for the vast majority of time. A lot of the sort of like ostensibly left organization is actually uh, sort of like social democratic or liberal uh, organization. You do have, uh, for instance, the social... Uh, American socialists and whatnot that are not communists, but do claim the, ter- the title of socialist, which is fine, you know. But the point is, is that anti-communism as an ideological element of classical fascism is incredibly strong in the present post-fascist moment as well. Now, obviously, when, when, the, not, when the national socialists were articulating their anti-communism, they were actually, they were actually fighting communists, right? There, wa- there was a communist party in Germany where Nazis would meet them on the streets and have full-out brawls. In the American context, however, we don't have this sort of communist organization. We have a broad spectrum of leftist activists, right? Many of which are very moderate, right? Like, the, like Black Lives Matter is by no means a radical organization, right? They, what do they want? They want accountability. Uh, they want some semblance of justice for the continuing, the continued brutality that that uh, black communities in America face by police. I mean, it's it's really not that radical. It's a basic question of justice. But when you weaponize uh, that sort of fear, like like Trump has done, and like many Republican demagogues continue to do, it you see how that element of anti-communism, transformed in a way, but still present is present in this present post-fascist moment. And the reason that is, is because implicit in this entire discussion and in this entire analysis is the realization that fascism and this post-fascism classically, but also the present post-fascist movements are reactions against the uh, failures of liberal, uh, liberal order and liberal cosmopolitanism, right? The contradictions of liberalism are reaching ahead right? And you see on the one hand, a stronger left movement trying to preserve the rights and liberties and the actual, the things that we've won through history and historical struggle, right? For, like for the most obvious example to me would be, for instance, the right for women to vote, the right for women to be free and independent and autonomous of men, uh, which in the post-fascist uh, paradigm is anathema. It's a sign of degeneracy, right? So, you have these two forces, one reactionary and one progressive that come out of this contradiction inherent in liberal democracy. So where do you think has liberalism failed allowing someone like Trump or any other demagogue to take advantage of the situation? Well, again, the economic aspect cannot be understated. the, the, fact, the fact is, is that capitalism has left many, many people out to dry. And, you know, this, this might not be so bad, except for the fact that people, most workers who are left out to dry are incredibly unskilled. I mean, once the coal mine shuts down, there's no place for a coal miner to go. Once the factories shut down, these low-skilled laborers have nowhere to go. They're not going to learn how to code. They're not going to learn how to... Uh, Uh, do middle management or anything like that. So you have this vast sort of um, 
emptiness, right? You have this incredible breakdown of the social order in lots of uh, spaces, right? And I mean spaces quite literally in the sense that you can go to the East Coast, for instance, in California, and there are places like Silicon Valley where, Valley where people are doing relatively quite well on average, but you have just north into the, just north and a little bit in, in the, inward away from the coast, uh, places that used to be manufacturing hubs, which are now complete ghost towns, right? And you, then you can do things like compare how many people die in these different cities based off of uh, things like opioid use or overdoses or alcoholism or suicide, right? And you see very clearly that these sorts of deaths of despair uh, are, are very clearly linked to economic realities, right? When people are left with nowhere to go and no way to make a living and live a dignified life, you get all sorts of negative consequences, one of which is the attempt to reclaim that sort of power by linking up with these sort of post-fascist movements who espouse a narrative that many of these people find incredibly appealing. So Hunter, what, what I'm gauging is that essentially what's happening is that these individuals who are being economically affected by the change around them, just generally speaking, um, are being activated by these politicians who are saying things that sound good to them, right? You know, if you're out of a job, you know, that, you know, this, the, what Trump is purporting, it, it, you know, it, it, it rings true to your ears, you know, and, and that's not a justification of it, obviously. So we know he lost in the last election, but how did Trump continue to twist this political knife in trying to get reelected? Well, it's important to remember that uh, classical fascism never, never was a majoritarian movement, right? Uh, as, I, as a matter of fact, I can't think of any political movement that was successful that ever actually had 50% plus one, right? There might be some example, but it eludes me. And it certainly was not fascism uh, in, in Germany or in Italy. And it wasn't uh, Donald Trump, right? We know he lost the popular vote in 2016, but because of the way in which the Electoral College, you know, everything like that whole discussion uh, is that's a different discussion, obviously, but he did win the election with fewer votes. Right. So it's not a matter of um, a majority of people or even a, a lot of people uh, believing the sort of post-fascist rhetoric. It's a, it's a substantive amount, a number of people sort of mass that believe without question uh, the narrative that they're being given, right? It's the idea that no matter what the judges say, no matter how many times Georgia recertifies its, its uh, election results, no matter how many times we see the numbers or we have it explained to us with evidence that Donald Trump lost the election, they're not going to believe it. They're going to think that it was the deep state or that it was Nancy Pelosi or that it was the Clintons or something to that effect, right? And these are the people who make up the base of this movement, right? These are the people who actually are ready to go out. Like, like the, uh, do you remember that one moment during the debate where Donald Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, right? These, that's the base, right? Those are the people who are immovable and who will continue to be a real problem uh, to liberal democracy, uh, 
for the foreseeable future, right? This is, a, this is something that we're going to be thinking about and looking at and dealing with for the foreseeable future. And this is going to have political implications that are going to negatively affect people for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I, sh- I would, sorry, I would also say that um, it is interesting to see that still he was able to garner, I think, roughly 74 million votes. Um, so there's so many people who may not be necessarily quite like Proud Boys and some of the other, uh, you name it, group, uh, but they're perfectly, you know, reasonable as well and and doing their jobs just like us, but having a bit of a different orientation and yet allow for someone like Trump, who who's, I think, arguably a con man in, 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 a, in a rather... Um, unusual way, given the high dose of narcissism, narcissism as well, but to be able to get so many more people who are maybe not like Proud Boys and yet succumb to his kind of um, movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an important point to make too. Like there are degrees, right? Like there are lots of people, like don't get me wrong. I, I, if you're voting for Donald Trump, chances are you have at least some sort of implicit racial bias, whether you recognize it or not, right? Um, We know that Donald Trump's policies are racist. We know that the man himself is racist. That that debate is closed, right? And the only people who are engaged in that debate are ideologues and demagogues who have money to be made on Fox News or other platforms like that. So the question then becomes, you know, what is the real difference between, as you say, the Proud Boys and what I'm sure is the majority of those American voters, right? And it comes down to, again, a fundamental sense of insecurity. These, uh, these people who are the sort of, um, you know, the not Proud Boy types, the ones who by all accounts could probably just get along uh, well, you know, the sorts of people who voted for Barack Obama twice and then decided to switch to Trump. Um, what's going on with them, right? Yeah. Because they are not Proud Boys. They may be ideologically sympathetic to the Proud Boys. They may share memes on Facebook that uh, express incredibly reactionary and racist sentiments uh, and support the Proud Boys, but they themselves are not engaged in the sort of political violence that is associated with the Proud Boys. Right. And this voter, I believe you have to uh, understand what they're doing and the way in which they're voting in relation to their fundamental insecurities, right? Um, The breakdown of uh, our society, right? And the sort of ways in which the postmodern condition has manifested itself in these anxieties and in these sort of uh, addictions, for instance, like addiction to opioids, which has caused thousands and thousands of death and untold suffering and destroyed communities, et cetera, et cetera. These all feed into the basic instability that people feel in their everyday lives and the ways in which politicians and political movements are able to mobilize a narrative which explains uh, these anxieties and these uh, societal ills by way of scapegoating And I think think that's an important point. Now we're almost out of time uh, Hunter, but I ask you the simple question, do you have hope for the world as it currently stands? Uh, 
as it currently stands, there are some signs uh, to be hopeful for, uh, none of which are occurring in North America or Europe. Uh, for instance, just the other day, we've seen a wave of red hit uh, India, what the largest uh, one-day strike in human history. Uh, that mm -hmm. is certainly a sign for hope. Um, the Communist Party of India, very active in the organization for that, for instance. Uh, but we do need, if we're talking in terms of what would give me hope right now for North America, because there isn't much, it would be the solidification of a, an actual concrete leftist movement, whatever that may look like. Uh, uh, an organization or a series of organizations that could articulate a shared vision for how to, first of all, address the crises that we're facing, but also how to move beyond them and how to begin to repair the damage that's been done over the last 60 years. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for being on our show, Hunter. Um, Liam and I always talked about Trump and all kinds of broadcast episodes, be it geology or biology. So finally, it was much more appropriate for us to talk about Trump and the dangers uh, that we're currently facing. All right. Uh, so this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the sorry of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host Yusuf, and my co-host host has been Liam Clifford. We've been speaking with Hunter Blue, and um, if you want to, if you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail .com. You can also Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at Western Radio 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on the website at gradcast.ca or on podcast app applications like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select, ep select episodes of podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful night.